What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Coming up in the science revolution this week, how does a nation best deal with a leader who intentionally kills its citizens? Also, Kelsey Lamp with Environment America is here reporting on the new American blueprint for our oceans. This could be a sea change. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear drops by on how more Fukushima water is being released into the Pacific Ocean. And in geeky science, how a Green New Deal could save hundreds of thousands of lives. Stay tuned. COVID infections now represent the third leading cause of death in America. This is a very contagious, very crippling, very deadly disease. And on top of that, there's a growing legion of people who call themselves long haulers. These are people who are suffering, you know, basically the symptoms never went away. One of them said, every afternoon at four o'clock, I get hit by a truck again. Literally couldn't get out of bed for weeks and now can barely get out of bed screaming nerve pain, difficulty breathing, chronic fatigue. And that doesn't count the COVID survivors who have now permanent lung damage, heart damage, brain damage, kidney damage, have had strokes, have had heart attacks. The most common side effect of COVID is not death. Yeah, it happens around 3% of the time. But the most common side effect are those things that I just described heart attacks, strokes, and things like that. Very often people do die from them. The latest estimate is that there's probably about 60 or 70,000 deaths in the United States in the last eight months that were not listed as COVID deaths because when the EMT showed up, the person was dead, and they said, well, what are the symptoms? And, well, you know, the left side of his body froze up, and then he couldn't move, and then he couldn't talk, and then, you know, an hour later he died. Or, you know, he grabbed his chest and was having all his pain and fell to the floor and died. Well, it turns out the stroke and the heart attack were actually caused by COVID. So facing this simple reality, every developed country in the world is encouraging social distancing and the use of masks to reduce the number of people who are injured, disabled, or killed by this disease. Every country, of course, except the United States of America. And now we've got this coronavirus. It is exploding through the American Midwest. And it's increasingly looking like the thing that spread it across the Midwest was that South Dakota biker convention where a half million bikers showed up in one small town in South Dakota. And the governor came out and said, hey, we don't need masks. I think Christy Nome is her name. No, we don't need masks. It's all good. Don't worry. And all the restaurants opened and everybody. And after all the bikers left, you know, the, the town came down with COVID and those bikers have COVID and they carried it half a million people all over the country. This would have been illegal in pretty much any other state. In fact, the bikers and the Trump rallies are the only, quote, legal, large, maskless events that are going on in the United States. And Trump is like spreading this virus from coast to coast 
because he wants his ego massaged. He loves those rallies. This is his last chance to have rallies. He loves it when people tell him how much they love him. All those people yelling and screaming. It's what he's dreamed about his whole entire life. And, you know, in some bizarre way, he thinks it's going to help him win the election, too. You know, there are psychologists. In fact, Dr. Justin Frank, a professor of psychiatry, he's a psychiatrist at Georgetown University, on this program have speculated that Trump might actually be intentionally exposing his followers to this deadly virus because deep down inside, he actually hates anybody who trusts him. There was a time in his life, probably when he was five, six, seven years old, according to his niece, Mary, and to Dr. Frank, there was a time in his life when, as a young child, he was very trusting. And then he discovered that he couldn't trust the people around him. He couldn't trust his father. He couldn't trust his mother. He couldn't trust his siblings. He lived in a predatory family, a family where the patriarch, his father, Fred Trump, was a, a high-functioning sociopath. And so now anybody who trusts him, he immediately assumes at some real deep unconscious level must be up to something. And so, you know, hey, infect them. This is how he treated all three of his wives, having affairs on all of them and, and you know, betraying repeatedly. I mean, we know of, you know, at least, what, 10 or 15 just on Melania, just in the, in the couple of years after she gave birth to their son. And what did Melania say? Well, I know who I married. I married him for the money. <laughs> it's pretty clear, right? But the point is that this is how Donald Trump behaves. You've, he's got several thousand people who've sued him for breaking business contracts. A contracts are supposed to be your word written down so everybody is clear. Uh, Donald Trump's word doesn't mean anything. So maybe it's this like deep psychology thing that that's the reason why he's trying to, you know, the, the, the Trump death tour. Why he's insisting on running this the way he is running it and discouraging people from wearing masks so they will get sick. You know, maybe it's that deep psychology, or maybe it's just that he's lazy. He wants to spend all his time, as he has for the first three and a half years of his presidency, three and three quarters years now, he wants to spend all his time watching Fox News and playing golf and doesn't want to attend to the actual hard work of governing. And so, you know, Scott Atlas, the radiologist from Fox News who knows nothing about infectious diseases, comes along and says, well, just to go for herd immunity. Yeah, that worked really well with smallpox, didn't it? No, it didn't. How about measles? No, it didn't. How about polio? No, it didn't. In fact, no infectious disease in the history of humanity has ever been dealt with with herd immunity. Herd immunity is a phrase that the vaccine industry came up with decades ago to describe the threshold you have to hit of vaccination before you no longer have to worry about a disease being active. And for measles, for example, it's 94%. If your vaccination rate with measles goes below 94%, you, have, you start having outbreaks. So God only knows what the herd immunity level is for COVID, particularly since people are getting it a second time. But here we go. And now you've got some political cynics saying that Here's a third reason why Trump is trying to spread this virus as far and wide as he can. To hand Joe Biden a screaming, flaming disaster. It's like, you know, the old cliche of the teenagers who fill a bag with dog poop, set it on your front step, and then light the bag on fire. I mean, that's, that that's what Donald Trump is trying to give to Joe Biden when he comes into office. 
In fact, he went out of his way yesterday to say, you know, if Biden gets elected, he's going to listen to the scientists. Oh, my God. I mean, that's his indictment of Joe Biden. He's going to listen to the scientists. But more Americans have died from this disease than have died in all our wars since World War II combined. And under, you know, in any normal circumstances, that would disqualify any normal politician. Inciting people to kill others? That could even land most Americans in prison. So how do we deal with this after the election? Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Do we go to uh, what, you know, the, the uh, like the church committee or the Pike committee in the House of Representatives, like we did after the Nixon administration? How do we deal with this? Your thoughts after this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Because we have to deal with this. We cannot afford to allow this to happen again. Kelsey Lamp is on the line with us. Kelsey is an oceans advocate with Environment America. EnvironmentAmerica.org is the website. Kelsey's Twitter handle is Kelsey Lamp, K-E-L-S-E-Y-L-A-M-P, or E-N-V-A-M, as in Environmental America. And Kelsey, welcome to the program. Tell us about this new blueprint for our oceans that was just introduced by Raul Grijalva. This bill is a really big deal. Americans have always had a special place in our hearts for our oceans, and climate change is threatening our ocean habitats and our ocean species like whales, dolphins, and coral. This bill offers concrete answers on how we can turn the tide against global warming and ensure that ocean species have a fighting chance at survival. Cool. How does it do that? It's a very large bill that includes a lot of different parts, but I think the thing that I'm most excited about is they include a commitment to protecting 30% of U.S. oceans by 2030. So we know that a lot of our ocean species, like I said, are at risk from climate change. But we also know that if we protect key ocean habitats from certain destructive human activities like offshore drilling or commercial fishing, we can give these species a better chance to adapt and survive in a warming ocean. So this commitment is really exciting and comes alongside a number of other exciting policy ideas, including ending offshore drilling leasing in all American oceans, increasing our amount of offshore wind energy, and a number of other great things for ocean species and ocean habitats. It really sounds good. Raul Grijalva is the former chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's a very progressive member of Congress. Has he brought along the rest of the caucus on this? Has he brought along the rest of the Democratic Party? What are the chances of this actually becoming law? I realize, you know, right now, Mitch McConnell is a a barrier to anything rational happening. But five, six months from now, there are very real possibilities of things. Yeah, well, we definitely are excited to see the support that the bill has already gotten from a number of people in leadership in the House, including representatives from Florida and Texas, New Mexico and others. So definitely excited to see a lot of champs across the country speaking up, whether they're from coastal states or not coastal states, to protect our oceans and fight climate change. In terms of whether this bill can pass in this Congress, obviously, you know, the election is coming up. Congress is about to go out of session in a few months. So we don't expect it to pass this year. But we know that the more support we can build for the bold and ambitious ideas in this bill, the more likely it is to be able to move in the next Congress. So... Yeah, cool. really excited. Last question. Too. So, 
So if, if people want to call Congress, if they want to call 202-225-3121 to talk to their member of the House of Representatives of the Senate and say, mm-hmm. I'm all in favor of this legislation, would you please pay some attention to it and maybe even consider co-signing it? What do they call it? What do they say? What are the magic three or four words that they can drop with that intern who's answering the phone so it gets written down right and the member of Congress actually knows what we're talking about here? And the name of the bill is the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act of 2020. Okay. And so we would love for as many members as possible to co-sponsor the bill and show their support. That's great. Kelsey Lamp, Oceans Advocate with Environment America. EnvironmentAmerica.org is the website. Kelsey, thanks so much for dropping by today and talking with us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And keep up the great work. It's, it's marvelous stuff you guys are doing. And I recommend you to anybody listening, check out the website. There's some good stuff going on there. Sponsoring the interview this week is... That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On the line with us is Kevin Camps, the nuclear waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. Twitter handle also Beyond Nuclear. Kevin, welcome back. I understand that more Fukushima water that the Japanese are preparing to pour just a, a, a blank load of uh, radiation into the ocean. What's going on with this? Yeah, this issue has been going on since 2011. So they use this cooling water to try to keep the melted cores cool. And once they get it out of the cores, they put it in these storage tanks. And so what they've got at this point is over 300 million gallons of highly radioactively contaminated wastewater. 
And one of the main contaminants is tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, which cannot be filtered at an industrial scale. And the Japanese government and Tokyo Electric are proposing to simply dump it in the ocean. And the only thing stopping them is the fishing cooperatives of Japan, who are like the little Dutch boy with their finger in the dike. What's the half-life of tritium? It's 12.3 years. So that's 123 years of hazard. And the fishing cooperatives, and I should say that, you know, allies across the world have joined them, hundreds or thousands of environmental groups, for example. If the wastewater were to be stored for 125 years, the tritium would dissipate, which is very good news. It's what the fishing cooperatives are calling for. Don't pollute the ocean. Because what would happen as giants in this field like Rosalie Bertel have long warned, it doesn't dissipate in the ocean. It reconcentrates in the seafood supply. And humans are at the top of that bioaccumulation hazard. So that's what the fishing cooperatives and their allies internationally are trying to stop. Right. So these radioactive elements, they get consumed by the algae and the small plants, and then the small fish eat the small plants, and then the medium-sized fish eat the small fish, and then the bigger fish eat the, the medium-sized fish, and then the giant fishes like the tuna eat the big fish, and then we eat the tuna, and guess what? We've got an amount of radiation that you know probably started out being spread over miles of ocean on a little you know one-ounce square of meat on our plate in front of us. Am I accurately characterizing that, Kevin? Yes, and the government and Tokyo Electric are trying to downplay the hazards of tritium, which is a real mistake. Tritium packs a real punch at the microbiological level, so it can destroy DNA molecules. It's a beta emitter, and it packs a real punch at that intimate level. It can cause cancer. It can cause birth defects. It can cause genetic damage, and they're simply treating it as if it's harmless, and it's not. Meanwhile, tell me about the Cook reactors. These are near Chicago, do I have that right? Directly across Lake Michigan from Chicago. It's in southwest Michigan, Bridgman, in Berrien County, Michigan. For a long time, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has been in regulatory retreat, and it's just grown worse under the pandemic. Now they use the pandemic as an excuse to skip repairs, to skip inspections. And what's happening at Cook right now, similar to what happened at davis Bessey, Ohio, back in 2002, is they're finding boric acid crystals on the top of the reactor lid. It means they have a leak, and they don't know where the leak is coming from. And what happened in Ohio 18 years ago was a giant crater got corroded into the lid of the reactor vessel and nearly burst. It would have been a meltdown. It was the nearest miss since Three Mile Island. Now they're playing games with the same kind of situation at Cook taking very optimistic assumptions that the leakage is from certain places and not others, risking another uh, corrosion hole in the reactor lid at Cook as we speak. Simply not doing inspections because there's insulation in the way, there are visual impediments to doing the inspections, and for convenience sake, they're just skipping the inspections. And what happened at Ohio 18 years ago was a near catastrophe because of such regulatory retreat. How many people are in the uh, blast zone is not the right phrase, but, you know, if this thing melts down like, well, just like Three Mile Island did, you know, not an explosion or a minor explosion inside the reactor, but basically a release of radiation. I'm assuming that that's kind of a best case scenario if anything bad happens. How many people might be vulnerable to that? And did I get anything wrong in what I just said? Well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission commissioned a study on this back in 1982 the figures were so shocking that they tried to conceal the results. But Ed Markey, who's running for re-election in the Senate right now, got it outed in congressional hearings. And the figures were very shocking. Uh, if Cook Unit 1 were to have a meltdown, 
1,900 people could die from radiation poisoning, acute radiation poisoning. Another 80,000 people would be injured, radiation injuries, and then another 13,000 latent cancer fatalities. And then the property damage was something like $90 billion downwind and downstream, and this is on the lakeshore of Lake Michigan. Chicago is right across the lake. So the population has grown um, dramatically since 1982. More people would be harmed. And the property damage is just adjusting for inflation, not even counting economic development since 1982, would now be closer to $250 billion. And let's see, I'm guessing that these nuclear power plants don't have an insurance company that's on the hook for that? Well, they have the U.S. federal government behind them, which means taxpayers. So the industry... Oh, you and I are the insurance policy. Yeah, the first $12.5 billion of that $250 billion would be the nuclear power industry and its insurance companies paying that. Above that $12.5 billion, it would be taxpayers. But it would require the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission to declare an extraordinary nuclear occurrence, which they did not do at Three Mile Island, a 50% meltdown. They didn't even do it. They didn't invoke the Mm. Price-Anderson Act. And even when NRC acts, Congress has to act. They have to appropriate the money. That's a lot of ifs. And probably they just let let people be on their own to deal with their own losses. That's the most likely. So are these are these corroding leaking reactors using Lake Michigan for cooling water? If so, is that cooling water running through that reactor right now? And if so, if the leak instead of happening into the air happens into Lake Michigan, what does that mean? Cook simply discharges all of its waste heat into Lake Michigan. And what this has meant, like in the wintertime, when the lake is naturally cold, they're dumping tremendous amounts of hot water, unimaginable, millions of gallons of hot water into the lake. And the fish are in this warm, artificially warm water. If Cook has an unplanned shutdown in the wintertime, what has happened in the past is the fish cannot adjust to that thermal shock of the cold coming back in. You can have fish kills of 500,000 fish at Cook. It's happened in the past, and those are the kind of risks they're taking. They saved money on not building cooling towers, though. So instead of steam going into the air like we see with a normal nuclear power plant, they're simply pulling it in out of Lake Michigan, running it past the reactor core, and then pushing it back out into the lake. You were talking about you know, how a shutdown might kill off the fish in the 45 seconds we have left. What happens if there's a leak in that reactor vessel and that radioactive material gets into this discharge water that's going into Lake Michigan? Is it uh, safely diluted? There are leaks, but there are also intentional releases. The wastewater release pathway at Cook and other American reactors is into the surface water that they get their cooling water from. So they have regular intentional releases of radioactivity. And again, it's not dilution is the solution. It's reconcentration. It's bioaccumulation in the fish of Lake Michigan. And people eat those fish. And that's how the harm is delivered. And there are no epidemiological studies to follow these harms. So they simply go undocumented. But they do occur. Astonishing. You can read all about it over at beyondnuclear.org. Kevin Camps, the nuclear waste specialist at Beyond Nuclear. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for dropping by today. Thanks for having me, Tom. I wanted to talk about science for a minute. We have known for decades that air pollution, particularly the kind of air pollution that comes out of automobile tailpipes and coal-fired and oil-fired power plants, and to a smaller extent, natural gas. But they say natural gas is cleaner, and the reason why is because it doesn't produce as much particulate matter. 
we have known for a long, long time that these tiny particles of basically soot, it's hydrocarbon stuff, it's diesel stuff and gasoline fumes, that these things cause strokes and cancer and heart disease. We have known this since the, probably the 50s, maybe before that. In all probability, you know, the epidemiology was becoming apparent. I mean, this goes back to the, uh, the Industrial Revolution in, the, in the, you know, the mid and late 19th century, 1800s. So we've known for some time that air pollution kills people. We just never really had any kind of way of measuring it based on a let's observe a population kind of thing outside of the studies that, you know, I remember a number of these came out in the 1980s and 90s that got a lot of attention that showed that uh, people who lived near freeways were more likely to have heart attacks and strokes, generally speaking. It was a very small percentage of increase, but it was there. It was measurable. And that children, and particularly low-income children who lived near freeways, particularly in urban areas where those freeways were heavily congested, were more likely to have high levels of lead in their bloodstream. Now, this was, this was all, like I said, this was the 80s and the 90s, and lead was easy to measure. And there were these, you know, increased and measurable levels of lead in the, in the bloodstreams of children who lived near heavily trafficked areas where there's lots and lots of car exhaust, which just makes sense. Well, bring this now to 2020, to right now. There is a remarkable op-ed that was published in the New York Times uh, on the 20th of October. It's titled, Where Have All the Hospital Patients Gone? And it's by Pauline Chen, MD. And she writes about how she, she noticed that the hospitals just, you know, starting in March, just basically kind of emptied out. And part of that was because people were afraid to go to the hospital, right? I mean, would you go to the hospital when TV is showing pictures of refrigerated trucks backing up to the back door of the hospital to put bodies in them because the morgue has overflowed? I'd be kind of reluctant to go to the hospital. And so the assumption that these doctors made about where the other patients went, and I'm talking uh, emergency room stuff here, broadly speaking, She's a, a surgeon. She practices in, in Boston. But, you know, what happened to the strokes and the heart attacks? If somebody's having a heart attack or if somebody's having a stroke, these are not, you know, events in our lives where not going to the hospital because you're afraid of the coronavirus is an option. Now, there may have been, a, you know, a slightly increase, a slight increase in deaths from strokes and heart attacks from people in the early months of the epidemic in April and May. And particularly in the regions that were hard hit, you know, in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, where, you know, some people thought they could ride it out and they ended up dying at home. And, you know, we see that the signature of that in some of these numbers. But broadly speaking, across the country, there's right up till today. I mean, by by June or July, pretty much most uh, hospitals had figured out how to deal with COVID. They were segregating COVID patients. And most people, most Americans had figured out that it was safe to go back into the hospital. And people are going back for dermatological procedures or to see their rheumatologist or to get their PSA tested or for their annual physical or whatever. People are going back to the doctor now. But they're not showing up in hospitals with strokes and heart attacks at the rate that they were prior to COVID. 
Why is this? Well, it turns out that, I mean, there's a couple of variables. Nobody's really certain about this. One of the confounding variables that Dr. Chen points to is that some research shows that during recessions and periods of lower employment, a higher unemployment, people may at least temporarily stop drinking as much and smoking, and they may get more exercise and change their diet and lose weight, all of which reduce your risk of you know, stroke or heart attack. But these tend to be temporary behaviors, and they tend to be you know, kind of event-specific. But the larger one, she says, the most likely explanation for why there are fewer hospitalized people is that there are fewer people having heart attacks and strokes. And then she points out that the statewide stay-at-home orders aimed at curbing the coronavirus resulted in a dramatic drop in human activity and a concomitant improvement in our air quality all across the country. Poor air quality is linked not only to respiratory diseases like asthma and emphysema, but also to strokes and heart attacks. Which brings us to a second study that was just published by Saul Griffith. He's a physicist. He got one of these MacArthur Genius Grants, you know, where they they give you a quarter million dollars a year to just do whatever you're doing. And he asked the question, in fact, he started this organization called Rewiring America, and he asked the question, what if Americans could drive the same number of miles and still blast your AC to cool your single-family suburban home all summer long, but cut U.S. emissions by 40% and use existing technology without a single new invention? And so he just looked into this. You know, what happened if we started driving electric cars and producing electricity, not using fossil fuels, you know, not using oil or coal or natural gas, but instead using windmills and solar panels in ways that actually could work right now using existing technology? Nothing new has to be invented. You know, obviously we'd have to to build some new ways of generating power. This is happening all over the country. Right now, solar and wind are actually cheaper than any other form of electric generation except occasionally natural gas. And even natural gas in most places is more expensive than solar or wind. Depends, of course, on you know, how much sun you have and how much wind you have. And what he found was, or what this study found, was that, first of all, you know, greening America, converting our, our power grid to renewable sources, converting the entire American auto fleet over to electric vehicles, which typically takes a little more than a decade for all the old cars to flush out of the system and be replaced by new cars, would create 25 million good jobs and would eliminate roughly 75% of the nation's total emissions, fossil fuel emissions, within 15 years. Because this is talking about existing technology. Now, that technology is going through you know, leaps and bounds of improvement on a constant basis. Adam Zorofsky, who was uh, the New York State's climate and energy portfolio management, he's the guy who was managing the investments for the state of New York. He's now part of this group, and he says there's this notion hanging in the air that there are sacrifices needed to be made. No, he says this is actually a way for us to stimulate the economy, put people back to work, put money in people's pockets. It's actually suburban households that do the best. If we applied this to business, we could slash our carbon footprint by 65%. And maybe we could get a permanent drop in hospitalizations for heart attacks and strokes. Keep in mind, heart disease is the number one killer in America. Heart disease number one, cancer number two, COVID right now is number three. 
interest of the story. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.